Hello everyone, The Vern here. I'll be really brief with my introduction. Alright, so this episode was recorded at Convergence using my phone. That's why things sound a little bit hollow during the conversation. Uh, also, I did not turn my phone on early enough to catch everyone's name that was part of the panel. So I'm going to do that right now. So on the panel, we had Brian Forrest, who hosts a cool show on YouTube called Toothpickings, which is all about vampires. And then we also had on the show Philip Lowe. Uh, website is maximumverbosityonline.org. We also had on the panel Brian Stump. Didn't have a website, but the dude did bring along some Universal Monsters calendars, which is very cool. Uh, also, today I give a quick shout out to a person that wasn't able to make the panel, but I'm still going to give her a shout out, uh, Beth Grimes, and she is on Instagram at Victrola Vitson. She does a lot of cosplay, and of course we had my wonderful co-host Ashley on there. Uh, anyway, folks, love you all very much. Let's get into the show right now, and then I will be back later on to give shouts to all of our wonderful Patreon members. Anyways, love you all. Bye. This podcast may contain adult language, adult situations, spoilers, and some brief nudity, so parental guidance is suggested. We have such sights to show you. After about five minutes of this movie, you're going to wish you had ten beers. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. So, what would you little maniacs like to do first? Hi, I'm Chucky. Wanna play? Oh, well. La di da, la di da, la la. Yeah. Welcome back to the Cinema Recall Podcast. What did you want me to say again? <laughs> Hi, everybody. Hey, everybody. This is Ashley, and what you're about to hear is me, Ann Vern, co. Hosting? Yeah. <coughs> I was gonna say co moderating. Yeah, co-hosting sounds good. You were made the main host for this, so that's what Barry did the discussions. Okay. Uh yeah, so uh, this is me. Uh, but, but, but what are you hosting? The Universal Monsters panel. Okay. I yeah. did it. But where? At Convergence 2023. Alright. Is that all? That's clo- as close as it's gonna be as it is gonna be, alright? You can come and say, what is it recall? You're like, hey, this is Ashley. Sorry, <laughs> let me try again. <laughs> Hi, this is what Ashley is- from Cinema Recall. No, do it right here. I want everybody to hear it all. <laughs> this is Ashley from Cinema Recall, letting you know that what you're about to hear is me, with a little help from Vern moderating the Universal Monsters panel at the 2023 Convergence, Minneapolis. Enjoy. Have time for another podcast and enjoy listening to two idiots discussing films? Then look no further. We are Movie Drone Podcast, two mates sitting down to discuss new releases, nostalgic films and anything and everything in between. He's Steve. And he's Mark. Together we answer listener questions and set each other homework, giving each other a film to watch that the other hasn't seen, in the hope of unearthing hidden gems. You can download us on iTunes, Podbean, as well as Google search us to find us on loads of different platforms. Or email moviedronepodcast at hotmail.com. I think that's all. No chance, mate. Huh? You've forgotten everyone's favourite feature. Mark's movie impressions. Oh, I'd hope you've forgotten it too, to be honest. No chance of that, mate. You think you should do one? I hate you. Come on, mate. Show them what you got. Hey, no fun. Hey, no fun. Yo, Adrian! <laughs> and if that hasn't put you off, give us a try. There's a small chance you won't regret it.
Hello everyone, The Vern here from Cinema Recall here to tell you about Newsly. Newsly is an all-in-one audio app for your iOS and Android phone. It picks up the most trended articles on the web and reads them to you in a natural human voice. For the first time ever, the entire web becomes listenable. Stop scrolling, start listening, go to newsly.me, use the promo code RECALL, and get one month free of their premium service. Check it out, and now, back to the show. Excellent. How about you, Vern? Uh, so, my favorite, it's not so much a monster, but oh, I can't believe it right now. Uh, he already took the creature from the Black Lagoon. Is it can be your favorite too. Can I? I'm gonna do the Bride of Frankenstein. The Bride. Is that? Yeah. Can that count? Yeah. As a monster. All right. Yes. I'm gonna do the Bride. Okay. That's your favorite. She's beautiful and uh, a little crazy. Great and, hair. Yeah. And I, I like that. Awesome. Yeah. I like that. All right. Um, I would tell you which one is mine, but I don't really have a favorite. Um. I just, I really like all of them. Uh, I really like uh, Bella Lugosi, of course, uh, as Dracula. And, um, yeah, I'm into biting, so, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it has a little special place for me. I love it. So um, let's, add, let's talk about, like, what was the first um, of these movies that you saw as a kid? Do you remember? You know, it's... Uh... I don't know if I can speak for anyone else. It's actually tough to sort of remember and disentangle because they've they've permeated the popular culture so much. I don't know, like, I mean, everything from, like, Count Chocula to Frankenberry, what was, but what was my first time sitting, like, I knew who Bela Lugosi's, I knew Bela Lugosi's mm -hmm. direct love, I'm sure, long before I ever sat down and watched it from beginning to end. So I'm not sure I could tease out. Yeah, Scooby-Doo definitely introduced my generation to all the monsters long before we met the monsters, as did the breakfast cereals. I do distinctly remember watching Ed Wood and learning the names Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff. I think from, I feel like I, through, the, through the ether I had heard the names, but I didn't register who they were until I saw Ed Wood. And it was sometime after seeing Ed Wood that I actually watched those movies. Um, for me, now this might be a, an ancient experience for some of you, but as I, growing up as a child, we had this television show on called Dialing for Dollars. And basically they would show a movie and occasionally annoy people on the phone, you know, to, to ask questions about what they were showing and such. And they would have one week a year where they would show horror films, they called Horror Week. And it was an odd mixture of Universal and Hammer horror films. And I think... I can pretty safely say the first one I ever saw was, was Son of Frankenstein. Basil Rathbone and, and uh, Boris Karloff and, uh, and Bela Lugosi. And can, can I ask, uh, sorry, uh, having just sort of like absorbed it through the ether, I, I was struck when I finally committed to sitting down and watching all of these. I think I, because I'd seen them so wild, widely parodied, I went in with an expectation that they were going to be a lot campier than they were, and I was surprised by how like sort of quiet and thoughtful and intense most of the movies were. <laughs> that does depend to some extent. You go very far in the, in the Mummy series. Yeah, uh, fair. <laughs> uh, camp pops up pretty hard. But, uh... Well, even the first Frankenstein movie had a fair amount of humor in it. I oh, mean, yeah. it, it. A lot of it seemed to be, tongue-in-cheek might be the wrong word, but um, over the top and supposed to make us laugh. Yeah. Not so much the monster, but the, the, the side yeah. characters. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Uh, those are good. I feel bad because my first introduction to all of these characters was through breakfast cereals. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Count Chocula, Frankenberry, um, I forgot there was a wolf guy too, uh, but I forgot the name Fruit of Fruit Brute. Fruit Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it is right there. Um, and then I do remember seeing actually the original Frankenstein and it was the sequence where little girl is picking flowers mm -hmm. and yeah. then he throws them over. And I gotta say too, I kinda saw that same sequence in Young Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. And as a kid, I always confused those two movies. <laughs> I wasn't quite sure 
which one I was watching because they're both scenes in the same movies, but just done differently. And I'm like, it seems more serious than this one. Why am I not laughing? That <laughs> yeah. there, there's a, a problem that you get into if you try to get too deep into Dracula, which is there's so many adaptations mm-hmm. that you can't keep straight in your head which one happened where. Yeah. And, you're, and you'll find yourself getting into arguments with people like, yeah, that was in the original book. No, it wasn't. Was it? And then no one can remember it. We all have to go back to their book and find out. <laughs> you want to ask me? Oh, okay. Help me. All right. This is my first one, so right. I'm gonna let I'm gonna do a little bit. Okay. Uh, so maybe you can uh, rate them. Like, uh, which of the monsters do you think that are the worst and the best? I can. I have the list here. So let's go. With the, we want to like uh, do like a top three, or are we are we rating the monsters themselves or the films? The monsters. Yeah. The monsters. <laughs> the monsters, <laughs> the monsters yeah. Yes. Like, which one do you think is the best, and which ones do you think are the worst? Uh, I'll, I'll say that Frankenstein's creature, I think, comes across the best in those early movies. Um, for me, the the worst. Um, Creature from the Black Lagoon 3 is the okay. worst one. Doesn't exist. <laughs> uh, Doesn't Just the performance, the costumes of the characters. Yeah, but by the time it got... Uh, yeah. Not all of them, but a lot of them started to get worse as the sequels went on. Some of them didn't. Um, Bride, of course, was excellent, and Daughter of Dracula was excellent. But some of the... As you go down further in the sequels, they, many of them ran out of steam. Uh, what about you, other Brian? Other Brian. <laughs> um, for me, I guess I, it's kind of a tie between the two, and it would it would be uh, Boris Karloff's Frankenstein monster and the Creature of the Black Lagoon because they're the two characters that I feel the most pathos for. True. In other words, um, people there was one, something interesting. It's kind of in the zeitgeist of, of what people believe. They always have this notion that Frankenstein created the monster and it got out of control, right? That's kind of what people will tell you, and that's not the story. He created the monster and he abandoned it, yeah. and that's what led to the whole the whole horribleness of it. So, so really, he's very sympathetic, and the creature is also very sympathetic to me. People come into his area and and do the, the for the purpose of capturing him and taking him and and. So those two are, are my top two. For if I had to go three, I, I think I would probably go with Belagosi's Dracula. Sure. After that, um, not nearly as sympathetic a character, but but still, you know, understandable. Uh, I would think the Wolfman has some sympathetic qualities to him too, because he didn't want that curse to happen upon him, and he's under control of his actions. He wakes up each morning just confused and has no idea about what he did the night before. He has no idea that he's a murderer and just killed all these people. Yeah. So. I might say, uh, um, I, go with, I go with Dracula and I go with Frankenstein's creature. Yeah. But uh, uh, my third, you know, I might go Invisible Man. There's just something, it, it, sort of the opposite of a sympathetic figure, the, yeah. the, the cackling... Lunatic. I, I, I did a rewatch uh, a little over a year ago with my son, who was four, turning five, of a bunch of these movies, and uh, his com- a lot of them just went over his head and he wasn't interested, but his complete delight with uh, The Invisible Man. <laughs> and if you, if you like, separate, or, or but instead of separate, if you group all the invisible people no. together, because it's a different one in every movie, mm-hmm. I think... Mm-hmm. Um, you start to see that there, there's once they start turning invisible, they aren't necessarily a bad person. But the the, yeah. the the canon became that the more you stay invisible, the more it messes with your head, and the more evil you become. Um, I guess so. I guess it becomes a cautionary tale. So yeah, you could have some sympathy, especially with the invisible agent mm-hmm. who starts out being a guy who's going to fight the Nazis, and as, by the end of the movie, he's going off the chain. He's not himself anymore. And I think it's really telling that, that, that the it's basically a vocal performance to the greatest extent with these actors. And so like, you know, Claude Rains, Vincent Price, and you know, their voices are, you know, really powerful and they carry that performance. Um, so I wanted to ask, um, with these monsters, they clearly represent a part of humanity 
whether it's within ourselves or what we see in other people. So uh, I kind of wanted to just talk about that. Like, what, what do you see in these monsters that you see in yourself? Shame. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe not what you see in yourself. Um, I hate <laughs> But kind of like what it represents in um, society. I would so, so I was going to say... Um, Going to Dracula, and this is tough because I'm doing the mental thing too, where I was a fan of the book before I got into the movies, and so yeah, it is all sort of mixed up yeah. in my head. I'm not sure, but the like I think part of the appeal of Dracula is first of all there is an element of like obviously hedonism to the whole thing. There's there's this sort of hedonistic fantasy of being just constantly predatory and not having to face any consequences for that. But I think that part of uh, Part of what's interesting about Lugosi's performance is there's also a certain, I'm not sure if the right word is joylessness to it. He doesn't seem to draw, like, great pleasure from what he is. There is this, like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah, I always thought with Belagosi, he actually does enjoy yeah. it very much. Uh, he knows what he is. And he knows that he's seducing ladies. He's like the original ladies' man. He's like, <laughs> the bring, you know, they like bring these you know, people over there. Like, yes, come to my castle here. Listen to the children of the night. They sound so beautiful. Like, listen, look at my stereo here. This is so great. That was awesome too. Come here and love me, all right? Let me just a little closer to you. Yeah. And he's probably the, I think Dracula is uh, bisexual because he does seduce Renfield. Um, the same way that he would seduce Lucy and everything too, just very much is in love with both men and women and just finds them both to be beautiful. And, and, he, and he has the line, this man is mine. Yeah. <laughs> this man belongs to me. But I'd also say that he, he hardly ever cracks a smile through the experience. There does, like, I watch him and I do feel this sort of pointless grinding banality to murder after murder. Like, you know. It's probably... And been spending too much time with Reverend Matt Kesson. But I, I kind of go with his idea that almost all the monsters in all the films represent the outsider to society. And many of us kind of see ourselves as the outsider to society, too. I cannot be the only person who's watching these movies and constantly a little bit disappointed that the monster doesn't win at the end. <laughs> you know, the monster always dies, the monster always destroyed, or at least, you know, whatever. Um, and you always Brian, maybe you have some insight into this because I've always assumed that when these movies were being developed, the monster was supposed to be othered and was supposed to be, uh, we were supposed to identify more with the humans in the stories. Mm -hmm. I think and then at some point, sometimes the filmmakers, the actors got a hold of it and said, I'm going to spin this just a little bit so there's some sympathy for some of these monsters. I, I think that's entirely true because I don't think this the studio was interested in anything like that. But, um, you know, there's a fair amount, I mean, you can write whatever subtext you went into to the Frankenstein films, James Whale uh, being gay mm -hmm. in yep. an era when it was not okay. And how some of that may have, you know, you know, influenced what he did. And of course, you know, Boris Karloff, you know, you know, I can stand around and grunt all day or whatever, or I can, I can emote something that is going to affect people. And so, yeah, I do think that that's probably true. And on that note, too, uh, view and recommendation: see Gods and Monsters with uh, yeah. Brendan Fraser and Ian McKellen that tells about the story of the making of Frankenstein. Ian, Ian McKellen plays James Whale, yeah. an aging, almost at his deathbed, James Whale, yeah. reflecting on making those movies. <laughs> and Brendan Fraser, Fraser is his gardener, yeah, or something like that. <laughs> Pool boy, I can't remember. Um, so, do you have a, like an iconic scene in any of these movies? That's like you just—that's the part you look forward to seeing in any of these films? Any of the Transylvania scenes in Dracula does it for me. And I like to watch it side by side with the Spanish version and see the different choices that were made. Um, it, for anyone who didn't know, there's, there's, when they filmed the English version of Dracula in 1931, at night they filmed a Spanish version. Ah, and it's one of the few instances where you get to watch 
uh, different directors with the same camera, with the same sets, the same basic script make very different choices. Um, and so it's kind of fascinating, even just as a film school uh, student, to watch those two films and see how they did them differently. Something really fascinating that recently has come up, that at least I think so, I don't know if everybody else will agree with me on this. How many people here have seen the, the new Renfield movie? Yes. yes, it's With so good. Cage playing Dracula, of course. Yes. There's startling similarities between the actor <laughs> playing Dracula in the Spanish version and Nicolas Cage. Yeah. They really do look very similar. I was looking at that the other day and going, oh, so it's this version. This is the Spanish version. Uh, and I wondered, and not to give too much away about Renfield, but when they, when they forced dumped him a little bit, yeah. I wonder if they were using the Spanish version for that. They could have, because I saw that. Startlingly similar. In the, uh, the the scene that leapt to mind for me, it was the one where I, I grabbed my wife and was like, you got to come see this. It's a famous scene, but it's in uh, uh, Dracula's Daughter, which, uh, I mean, all the Dracula movies have some pretty clear sexual subtext, but like, I feel like Dracula's Daughter is the one where it just sort of became text. <laughs> like, there was just no other way to read it, but it was, um, it's, it's about... Uh, Dracula's daughter after Dracula's death. Um, no explanation, just accepted. Nope. <laughs> but uh, sort of hating what she is and trying to conceal it and there's a, and overcome it. And there's a scene where she essentially picks this woman up off the street, brings her back to model, and is this long, uncomfortable scene of her very clearly just doing the intense Bela Lugosi thing <laughs> with her and trying to restrain herself and ultimately she does kill her but mm. uh, it's just it's such a, a strangely intense scene it, mm. it leaps off the screen <laughs> for me I guess the scene would be the uh, the creation of the monster <clears throat> in Frankenstein oh, because yeah. until they had done that you know nobody had ever done it that way you know the whole electrical you know birth sort of situation and it's like it's been so parried, parodied and so so copied and duplicated in so many ways over the years but that was the first time really unless you watch the, the Edison version and that's really well that's which is fun it's fun but that's that's something else I, I was shocked when I finally got around to reading Frankenstein and that the whole creation of the monster and bringing him to life that's one sentence and <laughs> I really thought I'd missed it I went back and read the page again I was like wait a minute, did, did he just create a monster and it was those yeah. five words there? I, okay, I guess... Startlingly little specifics yeah. that everybody yeah. thinks, you know... There, the word, uh, the, the, the spark of life appears earlier and I think a lot of people think that's where all the electrical stuff yeah. came from in the movies because they used the spark of life as a, as a sort of a metaphor. Well, and he, he lampshades it a bit in the book, too, because it's, it's a frame story in the book where Dr. Frankenstein is explaining what he's mm. done, and he, he states, I am not going to tell you how I did this because I don't want anyone else to try to repeat this. <laughs> like, he, he deliberately elides over it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Anytime I read that in those kind of um, epistolary novels or something, I'm like, okay, so you just didn't want to explain anything. You didn't want to have to research this at all. <laughs> I can't possibly tell you all the things that happened today, but I'm like, okay. Um, okay, so after these movies, um, let's see, let me read this, my ADHD brain, let me put it together here. <laughs> um, so clearly there have been um, remakes and adaptations and different, um, obviously, other movies that draw from these monsters. Um, which movie, after the original, do you think had the best representation and maybe the same feel as the original? You mean after the Universal mm -hmm. movies? Yeah. Do, do we get to count Young Frankenstein? Or is that oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you, can, you can do Hotel Transylvania yeah. for all I care. Well, Young Frankenstein, they, they were about to throw out the sets from the original Frankenstein. They'd kept them all those years, and uh, Mel Brooks and his team were able to grab them. And uh, I think somebody had kept a bunch in his garage, so they were able to somehow reassemble all of this stuff, which I thought was miraculous. That's awesome. Yeah. And it really... 
helped make Young Frankenstein work. Conversely, someone else tried to capitalize on the success of Young Frankenstein with Old Dracula. Do not watch it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it is only remarkable for one sole reason. I am, I'm pretty sure it is the first English-speaking movie in which uh, Dracula is associated with Vlad the Impaler. But it is not worth two hours of your time just to <laughs> check that one off your list. Uh, speak about that, Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula, mm -hmm. I thought was good adaptation of the book itself in a way. Although the book of Dracula is written as a diary entries or letter entries and it does dive into some of that, but just not as much. But I do like uh, his style and that he did with that. I thought Gary Oldman made a good Dracula, especially mm. the older Dracula. Yeah. I love the fact that he was not afraid to make Dracula appear horrific. Um, mm. And also like the fact that it does incorporate the love story between Nina Harker, played by Winona Ryder, and Gary Oldman's Dracula. That felt kind of almost like predatorial the way Dracula was, but yet you understand why she would go for that because Keanu's um, Jonathan Parker, Harker, so Harker, is kind of milk toast and kind of plain and he wants to find someone that's a little bit more exciting. And the fact that Dracula in Francis Coppola's version lost his beloved wife, she was killed in war, and he denounces God and everything, so there's compassion going on with him a little bit more than the Bela Lugosi. Bela Lugosi is just like charming as all hell. I mean, very cool and suave. Uh, then after that, you also got Blackula, mm. which is also good. Kind of taking more of the suave and classification elements of that, but yeah, I think those two, Blackula well, and Dracula. If you, if you wanted to set me off, those are the words to do it. Uh, <laughs> because Blackula is the first time we see a, a Dracula-type character having that love story, which Francis Ford Coppola just, I mean, I've crossed oceans of time to rip off Blackula is what happened in that movie. <laughs> okay. um, and, uh, Blackula was significant for so many reasons. There were so many things it did first in that genre. I, I, and it, that departs way off of the Universal Monsters. <laughs> yeah. But in a way, Universal Monsters ended up retconning to be more aligned with Blackula after 20 years. Mm. I do want to ask you folks about Universal's recent kind of reboot of these monsters. You know, we had the Invisible Man... Um, and then, uh, it's like Dracula AD, um, and then there was, uh, the one Tom, Tom Cruise of the Mummy was part of it, trying to do the whole reboot in this franchise, just wanted to ask you guys quick thoughts about that. I guess my feeling about those is that you can, you can remake these guys any way you want to. You can make a Dracula movie, you can make a Mummy movie, you can make a Frankenstein movie, but there really isn't any realistic way to remake it like these. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, what's the difference in making a Dracula movie, say even like Francis Ford Coppola or whatever, yeah. um, to when Hammer remade the Dracula movies? Yeah. Those are certainly not universal horror films, but they're Dracula movies. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know how you'd make a universal Dracula movie mm -hmm. now, or a universal Frankenstein movie, yeah. or any of those things, because these are from the time they're from, these guys are almost all public domain now. Yeah. Anybody can make a movie of these things nowadays. You can't make it be universal unless, I guess, you're universal making it. Yeah. But in which case, you still can't go back and make it like that. You're just making a Dracula movie. I'd also say that they're, they're the product of such a unique set of circumstances. I'm one of those who, uh, uh, I mean, I, I would say they're the product of essentially like glorious nepotism and that like Carl Lemley Jr. was handed the keys to the car and he and he th dived onto these weird little projects poured millions and millions of dollars into them he was the one who fought for like the weird RD James Whale mm -hmm. to direct and uh, yeah I mean it's it's because there was this kid who was deeply invested in doing this thing for about 10 years that we got this explosion of of fascinating studio art films, essentially. 
I think the one thing I would say, though, back to the original question of what, what is I would say the Hammer Frankenstein series is okay. one of the best Frankenstein because it takes the, the away from the monster to who the real monster is, who is Frankenstein himself. And you mm -hmm. see all those titles, you know, you know, Frankenstein must be destroyed, Revenge of Frankenstein. All the, they're not talking about the creature. Mm -hmm. They're talking about the madman behind it. What's the old quote people will say? They say knowledge is knowing that Frankenstein is the creator, not the monster. But wisdom is knowing that Frankenstein is the monster. <laughs> and then they, you can keep going with that meme because he was the creature created by Frankenstein, so he would have the same last name. So yes, he still would be Frankenstein. <laughs> Adam Frankenstein. <laughs> There's also a famous one that goes around, and it's someone has handwritten in the last line of Mary Shelley's book, which was unpublished, which is the very last thing the creature said was, it's okay, you could call me Frankenstein. I did <laughs> <laughs> oh. not realize this because I just started reading Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, and I had no idea that the book was going to go into a long detail about uh, Dr. Frankenstein's life and it's the part right now where it's just talking about how he met his wife and I'm sure it's going to take several chapters before I get into the monster and I did not realize that in just one sentence that's the oh, yeah. phrase of the monster in there. I'm sorry I didn't mean to spoil that. <laughs> no it's quite fine. It's that 200 year old book. That yeah. <laughs> how dare but, you. Uh, I was kind of curious about because I noticed that both Dracula because I did read Dracula and started reading it. It's all done in the diary entries and I love the fact how other authors kind of took that notion and did the same thing too. That's how Carrie was written by Stephen King, kind of done that dialogue. So it's interesting to find out how um, themes are inspired. I was kind of curious about why they, you felt they did it in that way, that letter way. So it was a style at the time. It was a very that, popular style to do you know, this or, book is in the form of letters or diary entries. Did they release that like in newspapers back in the time too to make it seem like a real thing? Not know. those books, okay. but they did serialize. I don't know if they serialized Frankenstein. They did serialize Dracula, so that would get published in newspapers uh, chapter by chapter or letter by letter. But I'd also say that I, I feel like this is like the literary equivalent of something like the Blair Witch Project. Like mm -hmm. yep. it's all about here's here's letters and newspaper articles. Yeah, and like totally. someone came in after the fact and assembled this so you can play the trick in your mind that that it's you're the investigator yeah. Yeah. digging it, this up. And it was like, really common for books back in then that time to have this preface that says something like these are all real things that I found, or I just found this lane on a train station, and I, I give it to you with only the minor, most minor uh, abbreviations and corrections. And it, it was just a, a, I think it was a way to uh, make it feel more real. It was, it was a way to do found footage oh, in a sure. period where you couldn't do it. Oh. I think I have a question. I don't know if you're, if no. you're ready for questions yet. No. Oh, sure. Oh, um, Orange. Yes. <laughs> um, not, not a special question, but what a cute, a neat meta moment in the Dracula novels when the gang's all assembled, the old, all the vampire hunters, Nina Harker assembles all the material that you have been reading, and then they all read it so that they're all up to speed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's like, you're reading what they were it is very much a uh, let's go to Spaceballs the movie to see <laughs> what's going on in the movie. Prefer best word, best word. <laughs> um, all right. So, right, uh, did we do this one? Or we mm -hmm. Okay, so, uh, what, sorry, thank you. <laughs> so, what movies do you feel like improved upon the original story? Mm. Like, like I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say my quickly. I think the Invisible Man that came out uh, with uh, Elizabeth Holmes, I think her name is. Uh, I thought that was a really good adaptation of the Invisible Man uh, by making it that this invisible guy, he's a very abusive person mm. to uh, Elizabeth Moss. 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 Thank you so mm -hmm. much, so much there. Uh, he's, it's a very abusive guy who's abusing her, but he's also this brilliant scientist that creates this invisible suit, and she tries to escape, but it doesn't really do any good because he can find her, 
and her turn, and he's invisible, and he gets her involved with some crazy crimes right there. There's a scene in the dining table with a knife, that's what I'm going to say. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. I, I love the fact that it dials into toxicity of male culture, and I just found that to be a very good adaptation, taking the sole premise of it and twisting it so that the Invisible Man is a truly horrible person, and I thought that was a really great job what they did with that. Uh, probably an unpopular opinion, I really like the Kenneth Branagh Frankenstein from 94. Oh, with Robert De Niro? Yeah. Oh, De Niro plays a really good creature. Um, and I don't think, and that wasn't well loved at the time, but neither was the 92, Franken, and the 92 Dracula by yeah. Coppola. And I think it's aged pretty well. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. I like it too. Oh, wow, like it. <laughs> He's like, all right. All right. Noted. <laughs> this might not be a popular opinion either, but uh, but I I find Hammer's Dracula more compelling than Bela Lugosi's Dracula. Um, I understand for the time Bela Lugosi was considered sexy and everything, but <laughs> but Hammer's Dracula there was a lot more of a feel of that sexual element that they were all trying to smash down Victorian-wise, you know, <laughs> uh, in that. Um, although I would be quick to say that you know, Dracula has never really been adapted, you know, accurately. I don't know if it can be or not. But, you know, people will say, you know, like when they say Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, it's like, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, or Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. And it's like, yeah, yeah right. <laughs> but, 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 did you see the 1977 BBC one with Louis Jordan? <laughs> yeah, I did see that. And that, that's a, that is a fair piece closer. Yeah. yeah, it's it's tough, especially with something like Dracula where... Uh, I mean, the book is a sweeping epic that takes place across nations and the mm. great period of that, whereas, uh, like, the universal Dracula is clearly trying to tell this much smaller, intense, intimate story with a few characters and a few locations. That, uh, Although I might say my, f my favorite might be an odd one. There was a, a remake of Nosferatu that uh, Werner Herzog yes. did in the 70s that is this weird, creepy, fascinating mm -hmm. little thing. And again, it has this weird lineage because it's remaking Nosferatu, which is sort of an adaptation oh. of Dracula yeah. and probably influenced the Bela Lugosi. Yeah. Like, so you have an off-license <laughs> adaptation of Dracula and you have Herzog doing an adaptation of the off-license off <laughs> adaptation, but he's changing Nosferatu back into Dracula. He's not yeah. Count Orlog. <laughs> it's a lot to keep straight. You need, you need one of those boards yeah. and strings on them. <laughs> I should have brought this here to the panel, but I didn't. But I do have the laser disc of the Werner Herzog, Nosferatu, uh, with Isabella Johnny and Vodalik Klaus, I think the other actor's name is. Klaus Kinski. Klaus Kinski, yes, very much so. Uh, I actually really did enjoy that version as well as like Nosferatu, because Nosferatu was the original Dracula, and they're both taking inspiration from Bram Stoker's book, but just twisting things about each of it, though, and I really think, and I like your opinions, too, about the original Dracula and Nosferatu style movie. It's not a universal monster movie, but you can see elements that they're both trying to build from in that story. And I, I think it's kind of fascinating with Nosferatu is that they made this character just creepy and ugly, <laughs> and then universal monster movies, they want to make it more adapter, mm -hmm. glamorous. Yeah. They're trying to, you know, seduce you into this world, but all the same time too, kind of making you afraid. Like it wants to like uh, intrigue a lot of the ladies that watch the movie, but at the same time too, I think during at the time, uh, during the thirties, they were trying to establish more of a nuclear family type of establishment mm -hmm. a little bit. Not so much as it was in the fifties, but I kind of feel like movies were trying to influence people to be, you know, hey, we're in the midst of a war here, we want to get back to the family unit here, so men, you should watch your ladies, because they may be seduced <laughs> by these um, Hungarian princes and whatnot. And I mean, they weren't. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, the, the, 20, the 1922 Nosferatu, I like a lot. Mm -hmm. um, it's slow, it's a silent film, but there's still moments that really 
are terrifying, yeah. especially if you watch it with the right soundtrack. It was part of a, a German expressionist horror yeah. at the time, and uh, they were keen on making you scared. The Bela Lugosi Dracula 1931 came out of the stage play, and the stage play uh, was where we get introduced to uh, tuxedos and slick back hair and handsome leading men because that probably was a result of a lot of the uh, stages coming from stock where you had one man who was your leading man, one woman who was your ingenue, you had your uh, juvenile who would probably have played Renfield, and so you had the stock actors that had to play stock characters, so you didn't really have someone who was going to be horrific mm -hmm. in your cast, you had handsome people in yeah. your cast. And uh, if you happen to be at a certain stage in London, you happen to have a magician's costume from a previous production, and that's what we're going to put on Dracula, and we're going to put a cape and a top hat on it because that's what we have left over. And it starts to solidify the public imagination. So when they bring it to the film, it's a real easy transition. And in fact, the, um, the, the screenplay is credited to Dean and Balderson, who also did the stage play. I think Dean, Dean did the English one, and then when it came to America, came to Broadway, I think Balderston did some rewrites on it. So the stage play really influenced the first Dracula and thereby influenced all the later Draculas too, I imagine. There's not a whole lot of film Draculas that are horrific the way Nosferatu was, mm -hmm. except for Werner Herzog. No. I, I was going to say, I have, uh, I have issues with the Coppola Dracula, I think it's it's just laughably over the top in places. <laughs> but uh, one thing I think it does well is uh, dealing with that sort of Dracula dichotomy, where he can be he can he is this barely concealed monster. He can present himself as slick and suave, but what we see underneath really is is sickening. It's grotesque. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, speaking as the lady on the panel here, oh, Ashley. Thank uh, you. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have like opinions on the Universal monsters, the way they kind of like use these monsters to somewhat intrigue women, right there? Because uh, you want to speak for all ladies? <laughs> Do you have to say what is your what is your thoughts about these monsters? What do you find to be appealing about them, or well, I think, like, growing up, we're ladies are, we're like, you know, we are supposed to like, like, manly men, suave men, but also the, the, <clears throat> what's the word I'm looking for? Um, kind of the savageness of men. Okay. So, like, the werewolf. Like, oh, sure, okay. Like, that's. Inherently attractive because even though he's a murderer, he becomes this like large. Yeah, he's a big dog. <laughs> but and and all of these other characters, I think um, there's you know there's a little bit of um, mystery with them, which I guess uh, growing up like that's what the bad boy. The bad boy. Thank you. You want to come up here? <laughs> um, which isn't necessarily healthy, let's be honest. Right? Um, but, I mean, for me, like, you're like, yeah, I like when you're watching, like, movies and TV and all of these. And you can see, like, representation of these monsters in other characters and other movies and TV shows. And you're like, you, you kind of... You get drawn to them, even though it's probably not the best choice. <laughs> you know, if a, if a straight cis man can jump in here with an opinion. <laughs> I, I, we're I, wait, I, we were waiting for it. <laughs> I totally get Bela Lugosi being attractive. But a lot of the other monsters, I, I just never saw it. But then last night on a panel, someone said, oh, Creature from the Black Lagoon. Yes. And I said... Really? Oh. <laughs> they said, yeah, that was a tight costume. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, and, and, and like we can talk about, uh, like, the, um, what was that movie? Shape of Water. Thank you. Oh, Lord in heaven. Yeah. Yes. Since we're talking about vampires so much, uh, do you have any comments on Twilight? Uh, no, thank you. <laughs> yeah. 
my, my comment is please throw it in the garbage. <laughs> the books were okay, though. I think it was the, the, the logical point that we were going to arrive at. Yeah. <laughs> let's talk no. about sparkly vampires. No, let's not. I want because, vampires because that are going vampire, to me. Because once a, a monster becomes popular enough, they become softened. And they become, uh, they have to Who become more palatable. <laughs> Who said that? I said I want a monster to devour me. Who said, Who said yes? Seriously. Oh, no, I'm sorry. It's safe. Oh, I'm sorry. I was like, you and me are on the same plane. Just kidding. I'm by myself. But I would say that even, even Twilight's playing with, again, we're obviously not big fans here, and I'm not either, but... Uh, it is playing with the same sort of tension that, mm -hmm. like, of this, I want to devour you, but I'm controlling myself. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, because there has to be that, that sort of element of danger. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Nothing like a 30-year-old going, going to, uh, <laughs> to, to high school. Yeah. Oh, it was way older than 30, wasn't it? <laughs> oh, yeah. well, definitely, but, like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yes, but he did look like he was 30. Yes. <laughs> A lot of my exposure to the Universal movies was back in the 80s. Uh, I think you remember this. It was a, um, it was a TV's Dracula. He hosted a monster movie uh, like on uh, 10.30 on Saturday night. I remember him. Yes. It yes. It was for like a season and a half or something. Mm -hmm. like that. But I just remember seeing so many of these these movies. You know, late at night, it was just like the neatest thing. You know, having this, you know, this guy. Not on cable, though, right? It was on regular TV. Yeah, it was like Channel 9. Yes. Right yes. The news on yep. Saturdays. I don't I do. remember that, but the horror host I remember the most that did play a lot of these old movies was Elvira. Mm -hmm. Oh, good old Elvira. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, What's that? Back when UHF was the thing. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, did you guys have anything that we didn't touch on? I, I wanted to throw out one plug for somebody else. Um, a, a friend of mine named Gary Rhodes wrote an article just this week that was published on Monday about the earliest universal horrors. Um, before Dracula and Frankenstein in 31, they didn't use the word horror film. Um, they would have had films that were mysterious. Actually, if you look at the very first reviews of Dracula, it says a mystery. Uh, a mystery filled with romance. Um, are we saying like the, Hunchback? You were talking about Hunchback. We're talking about Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Yes. Um, there was a film in 1912 or 13 called The Hindu's Prize, which Gary Rhodes thought might have been the first film to qualify as a universal horror. Universal horror. Um, which is unfortunately lost like a lot of these are, but there was a werewolf from 1913. Um, I, Edison would not have counted. That wouldn't have been a universal. But these were all within the universal mm -hmm. family. Um, they wouldn't have been called universal. They would have been called IMP at that time, um, which I don't know what that stands for. Do you know, Greg? No, I don't. IMP, some international movie productions. It doesn't matter. But uh, it's a fascinating article, and it goes down a list of all these silent films uh, most of them short, some of them still available on YouTube, like the 1913 Jekyll and Hyde, that would have been the earliest entrees for Universal to get into horror. Okay. Because I, I was looking at, like, a, like Lon Chaney when he... Yeah, and Lon like, Chaney would have been And those been were in the 20s, in the so that was yeah. like, yeah, Phantom of the Opera, and he was in Hunchback. Oh, yeah. The yeah. Man Who Laughs. <laughs> what was that? The Man Who Laughs. Oh, yeah. Was it Lon Chaney in that? Yes, that was Lon Chaney. Oh, okay. Was it? And okay. then we're going to talk about nepotism, Lon Chaney no. Jr. It was Conrad. Yeah. I was thinking of the other one, uh, London After Midnight. London After Midnight, famous. The Brass Ring, the Golden Ring of oh, vampire yeah. films. Uh, it's a lost film um, from, I don't remember what year, but it's a, it's a Lon Chaney film. There's still some stills that survived and a few short clips of it. Um, it was remade as Mark of the Vampire later on with Bela Lugosi, so full circle. Oh, okay. <laughs> Because he's not really a vampire. Yeah, it's, it's very Scooby-Doo. Um, the vampire's not really a vampire. Someone is trying to get something from somebody else. I'm not spoiling it because it's a lost film. You'll never see it. I have that in my basement. You're a millionaire. Come into my basement and find out. So go ahead. Oh, okay. Oh, well, I guess I'm going to do it. All right. Um, so as a kid, what was the scariest monster in your opinion? I know. 
wasn't really scared of them. You weren't scared of any of them. The Universal I Monsters watched. didn't seem None of them scary were scary. The uh, things scared me as a child, but not monsters. <laughs> no. Jaws. Jaws is the Universal yeah. picture. Hey, okay, counts. <laughs> yes, that. Um, I don't. I wouldn't say I was scared of it, but I was a little bit freaked out by the creature of the Black Lagoon. Just the way it, I'm, I'm not saying he's a bad guy. <laughs> he's a sex symbol. How dare you? <laughs> I was saying at first it just kind of like just scared me, but then when the uh, when the um, uh, and I don't know the actress name. Julie something. Um, Julie Adams. Thank you. Julie Adams is defending this creature. You do feel for him. Same thing with the Frankenstein monster. Uh, I do remember that being kind of a little bit scary as a little kid, especially because I was at Universal Studios theme park as a kid and mm. seeing Frankenstein, this big hunter guy, yeah. hovering over me. That was scary enough right there. So yeah, I remember being freaked out by that. I mean, I don't. It's no Sparatu, he's not a universal, no. but he was terrifying to me. Like, that's, like, when I think of, um, when I think of Monster, that's the first one. Like, he mm -hmm. is terrifying. So then, when I started watching uh, these other movies when I was younger, like, Dracula wasn't very scary, Frankenstein wasn't very scary, um, but I actually, oh, I think I have it written down here. Well, I Who did I think was... Oh, the Phantom of the Opera I thought was creepy. He was creepy. He was like, he was a stalker. It was creepy. <laughs> and he was terrifying looking. Mm -hmm. I mean, not the Gerard Butler version. <laughs> yes, dear. Um, looking back to Frankenstein, I was curious if any of you had seen the 2011 production uh, oh, with Benedict Cumberbatch yes. and yeah. Jason... Where they switched off between one night, one played the monster, one played the creation, and one played the creator, and they would flip back and forth. Yeah, it was a pretty, pretty, pretty impressive performance. It yeah. really, it really was, and uh, it really got to the depth of what the book was truly about. Um, casting off, I mean, the, the creation scene is is wild, but it doesn't involve lightning or or any mm -hmm. of those things, and it's. Uh, I'm trying to, I was about to Google it because I was trying to remember the name of it. There was a Guthrie production a few years ago back, I think it was called Fate of Frankenstein or something like that. I don't know if anyone saw it, but it was a, it was the conversation between Frankenstein and the creature when they are in the Arctic and they have some flashbacks to the creation, but it's a, it's really good. Um, you, you saw it? I think I did that the one he tries to make another version out of his girlfriend or his fiance and then it's. No, this was a stage play. Oh, no. Um, and it, I saw it at the Guthrie. I, I, I'm sure it toured around. And I, I, Fury of Frankenstein or something. I'm blanking on the exact name of it, but it was a really good follow-up, a great sequel, I guess I would say. Yeah. I mean, isn't that all? Isn't that what we all want? Yeah. Well, in, yeah. in the original, you know, the Boris Karloff version, you know, she's kind of being possessed at that one point, and it's like she's going for it. Yeah. <laughs> I also had the thought that uh, in doing my rewatch recently, this whole Oceans of Time narrative that's come out with Dracula recently, that's got to be lifted from the Mummy movies, right? That's because it's not really in Dracula. No. <laughs> Well, according to the writers of Blackula, they had they were not familiar with the mummy, but there was also dark shadows before that, which you know, it could be parallel thinking. Um, there, even going back to the 1800s, Varney sort of played with that a little bit, but never kind of brought it full circle because it was a it was a serial, and every week it was probably a different writer, and they were like, "To hell with what happened last week. Here's what's going to happen this week." <laughs> Uh, I'm just looking at other adaptations that you. I'm looking at other adaptations of the monsters and whatnot, and I'm kind of curious to get your guys' thoughts on the show Penny Dreadful. I, I saw the first two seasons and liked it a lot. I didn't I, finish I did the last season. I enjoyed it quite a bit. Yeah, it, it does hinge on something that I think is is kind of not really true. 
People are often saying today, well, the Universal Monsters are the first shared universe sort of thing. Yeah. Like, yeah. like, we realized they went through 16 movies and they were at the bottom of the end when they finally said, hey, let's start throwing these things together. It's like, well, that, that's not really you know, a successful franchise. I mean, it's a franchise for sure, but the whole idea of sharing is like suddenly you're at Ghost of Frankenstein and it's like, we'll just throw them all together and say, A lot of those monsters did show up, but like the Abbott and Costello would be Frankenstein. And that's even yeah. later. So. Yeah. And that's just, 50s. Yeah. yeah I mean, there. And they're really trying to milk you know, the last few bucks out of them. Yeah. <laughs> did they do a couple of those? And, like, well done. Oh, there's out. several. Yeah. The, um, my favorite, uh, although I. The, Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein, I think, is the funniest one. I really like Abbott and Costello meet the Invisible Man. Yeah. Because yeah. the conceit of it is, is so they? perfect. <laughs> <laughs> That's the boxing one, right? That's the boxing yeah, yeah, yeah. one. Um, <laughs> Abbott has to, has to just dodge the blows, and the Invisible Man is going to throw the punches for him. <laughs> it's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, I found it really fascinating once when my wife had to go through all the mummy films for a book she was writing. And we're watching all the Mummy sequels, and they, they get progressively weirder and crazier the further you go. But there's one of them which is, is, is extremely slapstick. And it's like, later she's watching, you know, Abbott and Costello meet the Mummy, and she says, Abbott and Costello and the Mummy is much more serious film than this one. <laughs> so do they meet all the monsters? Because I only know about uh, the Frankenstein one and the Dracula. I have no they idea. They meet the They meet Frankenstein, they meet the killer Boris Karloff, they meet the Invisible Man, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, Mummy, and there was a brief television appearance where they meet the creature of the Black Lagoon. Great. All right. Oh, wow. What episode was that? I didn't know that. Jekyll and Oh yeah, the Jack White movies. I know. Yeah, we'll one of them gets type it up real quick. The formula too, of course. Then... We'll have a viewing party later. I'll give you my right <laughs> You know, a lot of the Invisible uh, sequels to Invisible Man get comedic. The Invisible Woman is uh, lots of laughs. Yeah. And some in the Invisible Agent too. And there, what were the other? there were two more um, that I'm forgetting. Um, Invisible Man Revenge Returns or something. Yeah. Like, forget the name. Invisible Man Returns. I don't remember any of this stuff because I know you will, Brian. And the Invisible <laughs> Woman, the Invisible Agent. Um, and then there's the Invisible Man Revenge. And isn't there the uh, the one with the robot? It's the boy. Which one's that? No, I don't Robbie the Robot is not one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, is it, I can't remember the title of that one. Though. They released it with uh, the Forbidden Planet TV. I think. Yeah. Invisible Woman's probably my favorite uh, underdog in terms of the ones that yeah. don't get talked about. I watched it and I was like, oh, this, this is great. This, this premise absolutely lends itself to, like, sex farce. Like, right. You know? The Invisible Woman is yeah. the name of my Tinder profile. <laughs> <laughs> um, so with all these iconic horror creatures from Dracula, Frankenstein, the Invisible Man, uh, I know this panel is about Universal Monsters, but... Who do you think is the favorite actor portrayal of these characters? Like, when you think of, like, Dracula, what do you think is, like, the, your favorite actor portrayal? Well, Bela Lugosi. Bela Lugosi. Okay. <laughs> right. For me, it's yeah. Christopher Lee, but, you know, I'm, I'm still more of a hammer guy than I am universal. Okay. So, Christopher Lee? Yeah, I would go with Christopher Lee as your Dracula. Although, Peter Cushing is anything. Yeah. Yeah. How about you? I'm think, I mean, there's so many Draculas. I'm sitting here cataloging them in my head. Mm -hmm. Bela Lugosi's is super effective. There's, he'd be in my top five for sure. I'm not mm -hmm. quite yeah. sure if he'd take the top slot for me. I mean, if, like, if, if Max Schreck counts as a Dracula, that's a very close running for yeah. me. That's a good one, too. Um, I think that most people try to copy Bela Lugosi's Dracula. Every yeah. performance, I mean, Nicolas Cage in Redfield mm -hmm. is doing his Bela Lugosi. Um, That's kind of why I like Christopher Lee because he is definitely not. Yeah, but I was gonna say the, the Bela Lugosi's performance is so iconic that either people are imitating it or they are very deliberately avoid reacting it. against mm -hmm. it. Like, but you can't avoid it if you're yeah. going to play that character. It's in the popular imagination. Mm -hmm. You have to grapple with it in some way. But you always have the iconography of the tuxedo and the cape. <laughs> That's what's come out of that. I mean, with like, what, 95% of all mm -hmm. entire movies and satires that have come out since. You know, Count Ducula, come on. <laughs> there aren't a yes. ton of vampires that are not well-dressed. 
Yeah. Because let's be honest, if they were not well-dressed, we wouldn't be interested. <laughs> yes? You kind of touched on this earlier, but uh, towards the end there, you're starting to slip into self-parody and, and so forth. Do you feel that there was a definitive end to the Universal movie, the classic Universal movie monsters? And if so, what do you think of the reasons for that? Well, when they had to sell the studio, that was probably <laughs> um, because there, that was the end of the Lemley, you know, family thing. And that, not that there weren't any good films after that, but that was kind of it. Um, because after that, it was it was all about making money. What do you, what would you say is the the last film that qualifies as being a Universal monster film before we're not on brand anymore? <coughs> I might have gone with Son of Frankenstein. So, don't those predate Creature from the Black Lagoon? They Wouldn't do. that preclude the all of those? Creature from the Black Lagoon is, is really a different critter, which yeah. is why to this day I have trouble watching the Monster Squad at the end because it's like, oh. I'm fine with it right up until when the creature shows up. And it's like, <laughs> one of these things is not like... Well, Creature did not have a... Uh, did not have a previous text, right? There was no... No, he was creating. Yeah, no, I didn't think so. He made an authorization later. I did thank you for bringing up the Monster Squad. Yes, dear. Could you guys address the Black Cat? Because me, that's my favorite. Carla and Lugosi. And it's just almost a masterpiece. I always think of that more of a suspense film than a horror film, you know? Because it really isn't a monster. But yeah, that is... I mean... Not a lot actually happens, but a lot of stuff happens, you know, that you don't get to see, and it's really horrific stuff that happens. Um, and the, the torture element of it, that's, yeah, you're right, it's the thing. I'll, I'll confess to mixed feelings about The Black It's It's hard because it's a movie that has so many great things in it. Like It's got two great performances, it's got all that... Yeah, that whole war, torture yeah. background is like really disturbing and fascinating. Yeah. I'll say it's, there's still parts of it that I find like the constant classical music intrusive. Uh, yeah. I find like there's just a few like weird elements that keep it from being like a masterpiece mm. for me. But <laughs> So we're into our last minute here. I want to thank our panelists for showing up here. I know that Brian does have a contest. I do. Yes. It's not really a contest. To win. Okay, it's, it's a drawing. It's a drawing. Um, but I do want to thank each of our panelists here for being on here. So thank you, Brian. Thank you, Andrew Benelow. Thank you, Brian Forrest. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> All right. uh, and thank you to my co-host Ashley Yurok. Yes. Um, as always, I'm the bird. We host the number we call. You can find us everywhere on the interwebs. Uh, not everywhere. <laughs> Let's not get weird. We're everywhere. <laughs> we're now. We're now everywhere. You did not end this nearly as abruptly mm -hmm. as the Universal Monsters movies ended. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't know how. Uh, if you're interested uh, in, in one of these, these are the two calendars we're going to raffle off here. Um, all you have to do is come up and get a number from me. You tear this in half, throw it in the bowl. We're going to do a little drawing. Whichever two come out first, basically get the calendars. So if anybody's interested, please to come. Right now we only have two in there, so those people Thanks, win if nobody else does it. Some of these are deep cuts. You guys are going to win. Hello everyone, The Vern again. I hope you enjoyed that discussion on Universal Monsters movies at Convergence. Uh, we really actually wanted to record more panels there, but it was our first year doing moderating and being on panels and we just weren't able to get things organized in time. But that will change for next year. Hope to do more recording of the shows. Uh, we also try to get more YouTube stuff put on there, but I just wasn't able to, so apologize immensely about that. Uh, anyways, folks, this is part of the show where I do give shoutouts to all of our wonderful Patreon members. Uh, I should let you know right now that our Twitter account is down again at cinema underscore recall. I can't log into the thing and I can't post stuff on there. So if you can, 
please share posts that we have done, mention our name. Uh, I want to give a shout out right now to the wonderful folks at Film Rage Podcast, as well as Soundtrack Your Life for helping us out, uh, making tweets in our name, letting everyone know that we can't do anything on there. I mean, I guess it doesn't matter because Twitter's kind of going down anyways, uh, but I do appreciate your support anyways and helping us out there. Uh, so yeah, uh, let's get to our Patreon members. Shoutouts again. Our Patreon page is patreon.com slash pod, and we actually do have a bonus episode on there right now. And it took place on the last day of conversions. And it just has Ashley and I just going over some fun stuff that happened during the show or during the convention. Uh, so, in no special order right now, let's give shouts to our wonderful Patreon members. Again, love and support to all these people. Please support them. Uh, want to give shout-outs right now and thank you to Matt and Ashley from Mashley at the Movies. Jason Soto from Rabbit Hole Podcast. Jeanette Miller from AKA Jeanette. Donnie Roberts from the Deep Sea Anthologies, as well as formerly of Cage's Kiss. Linda Castro of Bedknobs and Broomflits, also formerly of Cage's Kiss. Uh, gotta thank Harvey Andrus, who is part of Your Editor Girlfriend Band that Ashley and I are in. And then also gotta thank Jen McQuaid of Shot and Applaud Podcast. So, big shout out right now to all of our Patreon members, again, patreon.com slash cinemaricopod. That's it right now. I do know that next week we'll be posting that Patreon episode on our main feed. And then after that, we will probably won't be back for a new episode until August, like the first week of August. Uh, But I will plan on posting some episodes in the spaces there. we're also available every Sunday night, 8.30 p.m., uh, fullswapradio.com for their Vanilla Sunday programs. Anyways, folks, that's all I have to say right now. I uh, love you all very much, and I hope you all have a great weekend. Goodbye.